Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we will continue our study. We uh, spent five weeks on the first 11 verses. Uh, I don't think it's been, it's been quite a while since we spent that much time on one section of Scripture. Um, but I do believe that, at least I hope you agree, that it was a worthwhile endeavor uh, going through the spiritual gifts. Oh yes, here come the, uh, the Valentine cookies. You may eat them while I teach, as long as you continue to listen. <laughs> All right. We are very distracted. <laughs> Yeah, remember we have a Bible and not cookies. Um, okay. As I've been wont to do in recent weeks as we study, uh, I like to kind of been giving a little bit of a preamble before we enter this particular passage of Scripture. Like many parts of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, the verses 12 to 31 are fairly commonly talked about or understood. They're not as famous as other sections, of course. But you have in here, from verses 12 through 26, the discussion of the body of Christ and the nature of what a body is. In America, primarily America, it also shows up in many other parts of the world, but one of the characteristics of the American uh, people is our rugged individualism. You cannot tell me what to say. You cannot tell me what to do. I am my own person. And we bring that into the church. And yet in the church, at least as we see in scripture, it's a body and rugged individualism is not an attribute. Now, as human beings who live in a free society, and I think, again, it's just really extraordinary that every week we look at those who do not, are not free to do as they wish when we talk about the persecuted church every week. I think it's a really healthy reminder. But we don't like the idea of being dependent on anyone. We prefer independence or autonomy. We might say we want community, especially as a church, but not at the cost of our independence. But when we come to this passage of scripture, we have to remember what Paul's purpose was in writing it. First chapter of 1 Corinthians talks about this schism in the church, this divided issue over leadership. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Christ. And they were going off in their own way. Imagine, now it's really hard for us to imagine, but just stop for a minute. Imagine the early church. It had just been founded. There was no one in the congregation who had grown up as a Christian. By a show of hands, how many of you in this room grew up in a Christian home? Right? About third, third, two-thirds of the room. Imagine that you didn't. So the others who didn't know what that feels like. So imagine you're adults, not children, but you're adults, and one of you is a slave, and the other in the room is a slave owner. Or imagine one of you is Jewish, and the other is not. Imagine one of you is an upstanding citizen, and another has led a life as a prostitute. In the early church, they were all 
in the same room at the same time and they had not understood this dynamic because everyone brought their own background with them and many did not want to let it go. They imported their culture into the church. The hierarchy, the class warfare, the sexual deviance, the political identity, and even their worship practices. So, when you come to a statement that we see here in chapter 12, verses 12 through 26 primarily, where Paul is writing about the unity of the body, this is a foreign sermon. They've never heard anything like this before. It's bizarre. Now they understand it kind of in theory, but obviously in practice, they're pretty messed up. And Paul is trying to correct this problem, this error. You see, the church should be complementary or interdependent, diverse and yet harmonious. I think one of our problems that also comes into this in, in anyone who is in pastoral ministry sees this challenge in the congregation is we fear dispensability or we fear being disposable or we fear being invisible as someone who works in the publishing business in the Christian publishing business I see a number of proposals and I actually have been a number of books that have been published about the invisible people in church those who are there and then they're gone and no one ever noticed that they were even there in the first place there are times where I'll bet you've been in a congregation and you wonder will I be missed if I'm not there of course you will of course you'll be missed we'll miss you next week <laughs> but we if you're in a body and you're aware of the people around you when that person isn't there your first thought is they must be on vacation then it's another week and you wonder are they sick and it's another week and where are they where did they go and in our current society hopefully we're sharing phone numbers and emails and whatnot and there's a way to reach out and talk to people so you can find out that's what community and in, the, in a, a, a body is with each other. But I, I wrote here, if, will I be missed if I don't attend? Yes. Yes, you will. But we often, or we can, fall into the problem that, and say to them, yourself, but I'm irreplaceable. And then the ego steps in. And so you have those that can create problems in a church because they won't listen to anything else and they create this dissension because they're irreplaceable. So there's this balance. Are you irreplaceable or are you replaceable? Well, the church will go on, but try not to make it all about you is the point. We should and can put all competitive nature aside in the body of Christ. Our identity and our worth has already been established, given to us by Christ, and affirmed in community. So that's my preamble. Yeah, I try to wax eloquent there, but you get the idea. So let's look at the text. A familiar text? But there are some interesting little tidbits that come out when we, when we look at it more carefully. It's a fairly long passage that seems repetitive, but I think it's repetitive for, for a point. So we start in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. And you have to stop and pull this apart a little bit. The word body is introduced in this first verse and is repeated 17 times in the rest of the passage. 17. You kind of think that's a key word? 
Yeah, it's a key word. He's trying to say we are all one. If we look in the chronology of Paul's writings, as we've been studying the Bible chronologically, this is one of the first times where he's really dug into the concept of the body. But he brings it up again in Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. He brings it up again in Ephesians 4, 13. And then he brings it up again in Colossians 1, 18 and 2.19. It becomes a bit of a theme that he returns to periodically. And we'll find this fascination as we study Paul's writings in their chronological form, how where he introduced something here and then he expands on it late years later, like Galatians versus Romans, from an early writing to a later writing. If you look at the uh, verses and how they're <clears throat> laid out thematically. A pattern appears. And I don't claim originality with this, but it's uh, interesting to note that verse 12 introduces the idea. Then you have <coughs> verse 13 talks about unity. So we have intro, section A, section B, verse 14 talks about diversity for the lack of a better word. But then the pattern is repeated. So it's A, B, B because verses 15 through 21 details diversity. And then he goes back to the beginning in verses 22 through 26 and he talks about unity being detailed. You find this in Paul's writing, this logic, this organized theological um, expression of what he does. And it's, it's fairly common if you look for it. But in the faith, you know, when you first read it, you don't see this structure. But when you come back and look at it, you go, well, wait, really? There's, there's intentionality to this writing. This is one of Paul's brilliance in that it seems so simple, but there's a lot of thought that goes into this. The body is one and has many members or Literally, the word for members is parts. So, you know, we're, we're, I'm not going to hammer on the, the, the obvious, but remember our audience, it's the first time they've seen this. But what is his conclusion at the end of verse 12? So it is with Christ. Christ is the center. Christ is the focal point of this body. We tend to cast aside that, that parenthetical phrase, so it is with Christ, because it seems to be, oh, we go back, let's talk about the body and its many parts. But he, he focuses right there. So it is with Christ, one body, one spirit. When the world looks at the church, they do not see the individual members, they see the whole. This is why it's so distressing when certain individual members come out and make statements that are then assumed by the world that it reflects what we all believe, right? You've seen this many times. Someone gets up there and goes, well, I'm a Christian and this is what should be happening. And you go, what? What are you talking about? You don't represent the body of Christ you're just a person out there with an opinion. Hmm. It's really frustrating because what happens then for those who work in the secular world or, or have that come back at you, you're saying, well, all evangelicals are this. You want to, uh, no, we aren't. 
uh, I've said this a few times, but I still remember an interview I saw with Larry King. Let's see, it was, uh, I don't remember all the members on the panel, but it was Joel Osteen and Tim LaHaye and some other preacher. Uh, no, it's T.D. Jakes, Tim LaHaye, and some other preacher. That's what it was. And Larry King kept pressing on all the things that are, were controversial social issues. And finally, T.D. Jakes interrupted Larry King and said, Larry, you keep asking us what we're against. You've never asked us what, us, what we're for. And then he went into one of his long, as only he could do. And I mean, he couldn't even interrupt the guy to go to commercial because he didn't take a breath. And he was going, we're for this and this and this and this. All these wonderful, beautiful things that the body of Christ and the church and Christianity is all about. And when he paused, Larry King interrupted and went to a commercial. <laughs> and you thought, he, he blew up the interview because... Larry King was trying to trip up these people to say something that would affirm everyone's belief that all Christians are idiots. This is a challenge that we have. The body is Christ. Yes, we're individualistic, but we represent the whole. As one writer put it, his name is Preben Vang. Paul's point is not to illustrate how the church functions as an organization, but to show that the church is the means through which the incarnate Christ reveals himself on earth. We often will come to this passage, and maybe even in church business meetings, we'll use this as an example of this is how we are organized. You do this, and you do this, and you do this, and as a whole, we'll get things done. And that's admirable, and it is a meaning that can be extracted here. But let's not forget the ultimate meaning of the passage is that it is the incarnation of Christ on earth is in us through the Spirit. It's one body, one Spirit. Verse 13, For in one Spirit we were baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slave, free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. Did you get the allusion here to water? Look at it again. We were all baptized. Baptism is on the outside. You wash the body. You drink. It's on the inside. You see the contrast? He's saying, yes, we're baptized in one body. That cleanses. But you also drink of the Spirit, and that's internal. It's both inside and outside. It's every part of who you are. I got chills when I read that. And it hadn't dawned on me before. Some commentator said, oh yeah. And he kind of passed off. Yeah, we got the baptism, and we have the drinking. I went, oh, wow, brilliant, Paul. Brilliant in a simple way. Every facet of who you are is in this spirit. We're baptized in one spirit. We drink in one spirit. Now, too often, we differ from each other, and so we then differ with each other. So you differ from each other, so we differ with each other. Yeah, you know, there's some uh, sense. In fact, many of the pastors and commentators, I said, you have to understand, if you all agree all the time, there's a problem. Kind of like marriage. If you marry someone who's exactly like you, one of you isn't necessary. What? That's why opposites attract. That's why opposites attract. I mean, there's, there, if, there, if you agree on everything, you know, there's a value to that. But at the same time, where's, as one uh, author and I, when we 
clashed over an editorial question in his book. He said, this ultimately creates a spark that creates a fire that creates a wonderful heating and warmth and flame. And he said, but I wish we wouldn't have to do this so much. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's picturesque, and only an author would come up with that. Um, but anyway, you had a comment, Carl. Well, I just was going to say that in a marriage that is, has died, they just don't even bother fighting anymore. It's like they don't fight their lives. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the worst sign, the total mm -hmm. apathy to one another, and that usually leads to then divorce. Or you can look even in the church. If, everything, if everybody's just like, yeah, whatever, we showed up for the cookies. Oh, sorry. <laughs> We're only here on day after Valentine's because they know Lisa's going to bring cookies. I'll just under that bus. We didn't know she was going to bring cookies. Okay. It's okay. Uh, but, you know, we're there for the punch and the cookies and, you know, a handshake or two, so we feel like we've done our duty to be a church. A vital church is pushing, is trying to make things happen. And sometimes when that occurs, conflict comes up because someone says, we need to have red curtains. Another person says, we need to have green curtains. And so who's going to decide? Well, that's where hierarchy and decision-making have to come in and all that kind of stuff. But, and I'm being facetious by being that silly with it. But differing from and differing with, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I actually had one guy write, he said, is this text an appeal for unity or is it an explanation for the necessity of diverse people? It's actually both, isn't it? It's an appeal to that we should all be one, but at the same time is recognizing that within that oneness is a lot of diversity, a lot of differences, a lot of different um, gifts. Because remember, this is the epilogue, if you want to say it, or it's the continuation of the first 11 verses, which are all about spiritual gifts. So we cannot forget, we cannot pull this out of its context. We spent five weeks on the spiritual gifts, and now we're talking, and he says, and yet, oh, by the way, we're all one. You just said we had all these different things. And yeah, some of you are saying, well, I've got, you know, I'm the tongue uh, speaker, so I need to sit on the front row. And oh, you, you're the help, so you use the servant's entrance where the kitchen is. No, that's not what it means. And that's what he's trying to say here. For the body does not consist of one member, verse 14. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would this be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged, meaning there is no accident here. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, I did not know, and I should have, but it never dawned on me. Paul isn't the first one to write about this concept in extant classical literature of the ancient world, this was first written about by a man named Aesop. In 500 BC, he had a fable called The Belly and the Members. He tells the story of a belly having issues with the feet about who was more important. The feet argue they carry the belly around and the belly gives nourishment and strength to the feet. 
Well, Aesop's fable became well known throughout Greece. In fact, Aristotle wrote about Aesop 150 years later. And so these stories got, were permeated the Greek culture. And in the Greek culture, it changed from a fable to an allegory with didactic purpose. The story was applied to soldiers being the feet and the general being the belly. Well, a contemporary of Paul, the Greek philosopher Seneca, he wrote, what if the hands should desire to harm the feet or the eyes the hands? As all the members of the body are in harmony with one another because it is to the advantage of the whole that the individual members be unharmed, mankind should spare the individual man because all are born for a life of fellowship and society can be kept unharmed only by mutual protection and the love of its parts. I didn't mean to say Seneca was a contemporary of Paul. I meant to say Paul knew of Seneca's writings. Seneca predated him by a, couple, by a hundred years or so. But when Paul comes to this, he turns it on its head because in the body of Christ there is no hierarchy at all. There is no division between superior and inferior. So while Paul, you know, to these people, it could be they knew Aesop's fable. And he brought it into the sanctuary and said, you know that old story about the belly and the, you know, and, and, the, and he's like, this is what it's talking about. Oh. Brilliant. But then he says, but we have to realize that within this discussion, we are all one. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, and that gets to this last section, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. I'll say it again. And think of the congregation with this wide diversity of people and background, everything from the slave to the uber-rich with multiple slaves in the same congregation. Those that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. We know what he's talking about. In fact, the word treated, that verb can actually be translated as clothe. Our unpresentable parts are clothed with greater modesty. Which our most presentable parts do not require. <laughs> I was actually thinking about this and uh, I, this is probably not unique to me, so I'm not going to claim originality again, but it came to my mind. So, in our church, some people are the brain, some people are the heart, some people are the stomach. Unfortunately, there might be someone who's an appendix, <laughs> who sits there, we have no idea why they're there, we have no idea what they're doing, and then they blow up and kill everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, uh, I mean, think about that. There are some times you're going, what are you? Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a problem. Now, anyway, that's silly, but it certainly is illustrative. Um, God has so composed the body. Again, the origin of it. God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no schisma, no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. For if one member suffers, all suffer together. We share a nervous system. If one part of you is hurting, the whole body should hurt. This is why we pray for those in need. This is why when Philip asks, are there 
requests within the body. Who can we be praying for? This is why prayer chains are so important. It's to find out how can we be praying? Because when one person hurts, we all are hurting. You know, for all I know, the thumb is actually connected to the tongue via the brain. Because if you're ever trying to nail something on the wall and you hit your thumb with the hammer, I don't know, I, I actually think it bypasses the brain because then the tongue begins to say things that normally wouldn't be spoken. And they're loud and expressive. And, you know, there's this connection. And the worst part is, if you ever hit your thumb, you see yourself do it. And you don't feel it for a heartbeat or two. And then suddenly it's your entire body from the tip of your hair to the toenails on your toe is all screaming in pain. You can't think of anything else except this nice little center point of your entire body. That's a picture of the body of Christ. When one person is hurting, the whole body should hurt as well. And where we fail is when we're not listening to our other members of the body and are unaware of their pain because we have not reached out to them and have not connected with them. Remember the hand swung the hammer, the other hand. Yeah, that's the one you gotta get. Yeah, discipline that hand with that hand. That's right. Give him a whack on the back of the hand. Yeah, you nasty little hand, you. Anyway, this is why you hire other people to nail so you don't have to deal with it. <laughs> Romans 12.15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law. When one person suffers, we all suffer. And if one member is honored, we all rejoice together. It's the same idea of this unity together. 20, verse 27 is interesting. Because he goes from the singular you to the plural you. He switches. The preceding has been singular. And now he says, and now you. He emphasizes the you are the body of Christ and the individual members in it. Came across this poem in the, um, in the sermon or commentary by Deffenbaugh. Uh, he did not attribute it other than to say it was one of the men in his church who wrote it. And he actually apparently was a song that the guy sang in church. Um, here's the lyrics. You're a hand and you're a grand. You can type or sew or write and play guitar all night. I'm just a foot, a lousy foot, wrapped in this smelly sock and stuffed in this dirty shoe. Oh, how I wish I were you. Well, I'll never get to shake feet with my neighbors or paint a pretty picture or hang it on a wall. But I guess you'd never find your guitar if you didn't have me to take you down the hall. So I guess we really need each other to do what the Lord has planned for us to do. Because if he didn't want us, brother, I know he never would have stuck me here with you. You're a mouth. And what a mouth. You can talk or eat or sing. In fact, you can do most anything. I'm just an ear. Covered by people's hair. Mothers make their kids wash behind there because I'm full of goo. How I wish I were you. Oh, I'll never get to sing at Christmas or kiss my pretty sweetheart or tell her I'll be true. But I guess you'll never know she loves us if she ever whispered those same words to you. You see, we really need each other to do what the Lord has planned us to do because if it didn't work with each other, the Lord would find others to replace us, to place me and you. So the text continues. In verses 28 and 29, 
And we talked about this before in the context of the spiritual gifts, but suddenly Paul lists the gifts again. So doesn't this um, suggest that it's like a donut? He has the outside part is all about the spiritual gifts, and then in the middle, he talks about the unity of the body. Spiritual gifts, one body, spiritual gifts. Again, very intentional. <coughs> and to have it right on the heels of verses 1 through 12, it's even more fascinating that the list isn't listed the same and they're not the same ones in the second time. So it means he's not suggesting a hierarchy. He's not saying one versus another. We, we talked about this before. But then in verse 29, he goes into a series of rhetorical questions. Are all apostles? Well, no. Are all prophets? No. Teachers? No. Miracle workers? No. Possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? No, no, no. But then comes verse 31, which absolutely confuses everybody. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Didn't he just say not to do that? Didn't he just say there is no higher or lower? And even if you change the meaning of the word higher to, which is another translation, is the word greater, isn't he contradict? Is he con is Paul contradicting himself? Isn't the key word here desire? That doesn't mean you have it. Doesn't mean you have it, but he's saying, why should you be seeking the greater if you have lesser? See, doesn't it doesn't sound like what Paul's been trying to say? Well, I'm going to throw that to the class. I have a theory, but I'm going to see if. Because this verse confuses people. And there are some churches that use this verse as their proof text that some gifts are greater than others and will say things like, well, you have to speak in tongues to be a member of our church. Yeah. This is a tough one. This is a tough Pardon one. Pardon me, I'm the, I'm the new kid on the That's block right. here. Speak. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk about you next week. <laughs> I hear you have a podcast. Yeah, I do. Yeah, we'll listen later. Okay. We'll talk. We'll talk as they say. Okay. If you desire the higher gifts, it doesn't. It's not the same as having them. You're simply desiring. What I'm thinking of is no matter where you are in the body of Christ, you're going to do a better job than that. Mm -hmm. That's all. I'm done. <laughs> That's all right. Go ahead. I found an alternate translation. I've got the uh, NIV, but in the footnote for that. Yeah, the verse, footnotes are very key here. Yes, it says instead of saying but eagerly desire the greater gifts, it says, or, but you are eagerly desiring the uh -huh. greater gifts. The so, Greek allows for two different ways to render the verse. It can say, earnestly desire the higher gifts, or it can be a, almost a, uh, a disciplinary statement. Like a review. You are earnestly desiring the higher gifts. That's a different meaning. One says, go for it. The other one is, stop that. The problem with the alternative reading, which is why it shows up only in the footnotes, is because the same word for earnestly desire, which is the, uh, it's a Greek word meaning zealous, is found in chapter 14, verse one, where it says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Same word, same verb construction. And there, you can't interpret it differently. 
there's no way to say, pursue love and earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts. It doesn't work. So there's been those who will say, well, the, the literal Greek construction does not allow for the two of them to say different things. Go ahead. There's two parts of the verse, right? Oh yeah, well that's there's, definitely so two parts. There's not punctuation in the Greek, right? There is no punctuation. So would it be like, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Maybe. That's not, 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 a bad, not a bad thought, yeah. And there's no chapter breaks. Exactly. So it goes right into... Right into the talk about love. faith, hope, and love. There's also no paragraphs. And if you remember, Greek is written in all caps. With no punctuation, no verse references, and no chapter breaks. So it's this blur of... Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret but earnestly desire the higher gifts? And I will show you a greater way. And then he goes into the love chapter. We break it apart so we can look at it like this. Go ahead. Well, the, there's a difference, though, between those two sentences, 31 and 14.1, is the word greater. There's the point he's making. True. We're supposed to desire spiritual gifts, but not desire greater. But you're desiring the greater gifts as mm -hmm. opposed to you should desire get the gifts. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that to me, that makes all the difference in the world. It's, that so, greater. It's, it's so subtle. And it's one of those in the laundry list of 25,000 questions we have about the Bible <laughs> that when we get to heaven, we stand in line and go, what did you mean? <laughs> because we're confused. I've had, I actually had a few weeks ago, um, they're not here today, but came up and pointed at that verse. Says, what, what does that mean? So you see what we do in English because of our punctuation, because of our verse references, because we're, it's a translation but even then, the footnotes don't agree with what's in the text. I don't have a great answer other than to say the alternative is actually makes, to me, makes more sense. For him to say, but you are earnestly desiring the higher gifts, and I'll show you a, a more excellent way. And yet, at the same time, depending on how you emphasize which syllable, <laughs> He could be saying the same way with that same English construction. But earnestly desire your gifts, and as Johanna said, and I'll show you a more excellent way. If there's no period. Anyway. But, but doesn't this go back to contextual understanding? You, Absolutely. You have to see what is the context, what comes before and after, and, and the... the Desire greater gifts is has nothing to do with Paul's message up to this mm -hmm. point. It's not an epistle about this is how you should seek after greater gifts because that's more holy. Because also in 14, Paul writes, I wish every one of you would speak in tongues and prophesy. And so people will take that verse, this verse, and then create doctrine from yep. it. Mm -hmm. And this is where when you start pulling things apart, you can get the Bible to say almost anything yep. you want if you're not careful. But I'll show you a more excellent way. I just love that intro to chapter 13. We're not going to hit the whole chapter, obviously. We only have 15 minutes, but I have my preamble on 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3. I will show you a more excellent way. Psychiatrist Carl Menninger wrote, Love is the medicine for the sickness of the world. Love cures. It cures those who give it, and it cures those who receive it. But we have a problem in the English language. We use the word love so much, it has no meaning. And we discussed this at length when we were doing the uh, uh, Fruit of the Spirit discussion, since the first of the Fruit of the Spirit is love. We did a whole class on it. But we can love a car, we can love a wife, a dog, a new dress, Valentine cookies, 
<laughs> I actually wrote it. I wrote it down because I knew it was half coming. We can love a movie. We can love a book. So what is love? What is love truly? We come to chapter 13, which is arguably the most famous chapter in the Bible, even more so than Psalm 23. Because you don't see Psalm 23 being read at weddings. They usually don't like to try to talk about the valley of the shadow of death, <laughs> giving their marriage vows. But it's almost become so common in wedding ceremonies to read this passage. It's also taken out of context. In and of itself, it's absolutely tremendous. It's one of the height. Most, most scholars and writers and whatnot will point at this chapter, and especially the section starting in verse 4, as the ultimate of Paul's writings. The most beautiful expression of one topic ever written. If you were watching the Super Bowl and were watching the commercials, which is the only reason to watch the Super Bowl. No, actually, the game was a really good one. Um, there was a New York Life commercial. Did anybody see it? Notice it? Talked about the four Greek words for love? Yes. Yeah. It was kind of startling. Going, what? This is the Bible being presented in a commercial. And of course, their whole point is, Let me, we want to show you agape, how we have loved everyone in this way, New York Life Insurance for the last 125 years. You can go watch it online. It's really startling to see a very short Greek Bible study in a Super Bowl commercial. And it was done well. When it first started, I went, oh, where is he going? Where? Oh, oh wow, they got it right. That's amazing. The first, we, and we know, and we've heard, you've heard this before, there are four main Greek words for love in the New Testament. Can you name them? Let's do a test. First is agape, which is found here. Eros. Eros. What's the fourth one? That's always the hardest one to remember. Story. Hmm? So you have agape, meaning the uh, self-giving love, and we relate that to, to God's love for us. You have eros, which is physical love or sexual love. Phileo, brotherly love, like Philadelphia. Wait. Um, that's just what it's named for. <laughs> they don't necessarily exhibit it right now, um, especially in sports. <clears throat> and then storge, meaning friendship. So phileo is stronger than friendship, but they're very similar. Now, out of curiosity, I don't know what started me. I thought, well, how does the Greek Old Testament use these words? And I, it opened up a vast scholastic debate that I spent a half hour reading about. Um, I didn't realize, because you know, the Septuagint was done around 100 BC. So this is 140, 150 years before Paul's writing this, this chapter. They translated the Hebrew into Greek, the common Greek of the day. And they used the word agape 340 times in the Old Testament. But not like we used it, and not like Paul uses it in chapter 13. In fact, agape is used to describe Ammon's pathological love for his half-sister Tamar. That he initially loved her, but then hated her after he raped her. That's in 2 Samuel 13. And you go, wait, that's not agape at all. So even D.A. Carson, he has a whole chapter on exegetical fallacies, and he talks about the difference between phileo and agape in the Old Testament writings. There's no difference. Um, so anyway, <laughs> I don't want to blow up that uh, idea for you. Well, exactly. That's the point made. Is it, it, language can change meaning over time. 
I can't come up with a good example in English other than the word gay. That used to mean happy. Now it has a completely different meaning. So we have to change the Christmas carol. You know, I mean, it just, what? You can't use that word the same way. Words also change as a new concept comes into play, right? So the, the use of agape to talk about mm-hmm. Christian love, right? Yes. That's, that works along with the development of the early church, right? Mm-hmm. So that you get the same thing with the concept of a person, right? So the concept of a person is very different pre-Christianity mm-hmm. to Christianity. Well said, well said. And the other challenge that, that we run into, and it, this is, again, when you dig into contemporary to Paul, not Septuagint, but contemporary to Paul, in that time, agape was rarely used in the secular world. They cannot find it in literature written in the, around the first century. It's, it's there periodically, but it hasn't, and so it had changed in its impact. And what happens is Paul comes in and says, here's this word, and oh, what a deep word. Now, I'm gonna throw out something else. And I thought, are these the only Greek words for love? We know these four because of C.S. Lewis's four loves. Oh, I saw your hand, I'm sorry. Well, but it's not a response to you. Okay. Well, I was just True. Um, but the Old Testament is focused on a love, but it's chesed. Exactly. Love. Well and, said. And the agape had, like you said, disappeared from that scene. And Jesus resurrected. I mean, that he gave his embodiment of agape love. So there's that. Well, I actually came across a, a scholastic article. I didn't take the time to read it. Asking about chesed being translated as agape in the Old Testament wasn't, and it's inconsistent, the, it's just to say the least. Is that, would that be accurate? Yeah, in other words, it's there, but it's not the same every time. There are five other Greek words for love, besides these four. Now, I haven't doubled down to double, triple, quadruple check this fact, so, you know, if I'm wrong, you know, you can talk about me later. Um, but you have let us, which means a playful love. Uh, encompasses the play of children or even flirtation or laughter with friends. You have pragma, where we get our word pragmatic. That is a enduring or mature love, the kind that sustains marriages. Because you don't find that over here. You could, kind of, up here, but it's not quite the same. There is also xenia, which is the concept of hospitality. Believe it or not, mania, which is an obsessive or possessive dependent love. And then the last one, similar to phileo, but it's a different ending, is the healthy self-love like healthy self-esteem, self-esteem. All are shades, but in difference than these four ones that we always talk about, but these are the four ones that are used in the New Testament, and these ones are not. Fascinating. Exactly. All the shades of meaning. It's, and so it's worthless. It's not love. It's not. It's not what the New Testament is trying to talk about. It's a word that is, is airy and has no substance to it. Right. And it's why it's, they're not used in the meaning New Testament. It's not. Right. <laughs> I mean, I also found out that in Hawaiian there are 200 different words for rain. <laughs> you see it every day. You know, usually for about five minutes. And then it's gone. Um, having gone to high school there, I can attest to that. We just called it rain. Or, oh, no, not again. Anyway. Uh, so,
So here's another challenge we have in that we have put 1 Corinthians 13 on a pedestal. It is beautiful. But do you think that the, he, the, the listeners of this passage in Corinth were taken by its beauty? I actually think they were convicted to the core and were uneasy listeners. Think of the context again. For 12 chapters, Paul has gone on and on and on with all of the problems there. It opens with the quarrels over leadership. Chapter 5, there was sexual immorality that was being tolerated. You had a man with his mom, for goodness sake. There were lawsuits in chapter 6 between members. You had this cacophony in the worship services. Chapter 4, verses 18 to 21, he writes, Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming there. But I will come very soon, if the Lord is willing, and I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. So what do you prefer? Shall I come with a rod of discipline, or shall I come with love and a gentle spirit? He is teaching these people. He's correcting them. And he's just spent this whole time talking about the differences of the spiritual gifts and how some have this and some have that, but we're all one. And then he says, and I want to show you a more excellent way. If this is the first time you have ever heard this, you're sitting there going, oh, I don't have that. This is not a chapter of encouragement. It is a chapter of contrast. I'm not saying it's not encouragement. But to these listeners, in this context, think of the first 12 chapters. And then he writes this. Wow. First time... This beautiful words are said are in the context of discipline. Isn't that incredible to think about? When we come to our Bible study and we think about this, we shouldn't just feel sentimental. It should cut us to the quick and knock us to our knees. Because like reading the Sermon on the Mount, or like reading the passages on the fruit of the Spirit, or coming to this, we have to say, this is a bar or a threshold that is set here. And do I do this? Am I patient and kind? Never envy or boasting? Am I never arrogant or rude? Do I never insist on my own way? And I won't read the next one because I'm never irritable. Ask Lisa. Am I resentful? Rejoice in wrongdoing? Do I bear all things, believe all things, hope all things? No, I do not. And none of you do either. It is set as a something to aspire to. That's why it's so glorious. Yes, it brings the feeling of sentimentality, and it's fine. It also does have encouragement. But let's not forget its purpose. Its purpose is a preaching point of contrast to how these people were living. And I'm going to hold off on the rest because we've run out of time. I was going to do a little more on verses 1 through 3, but I can save that for next week. And I thought it was kind of interesting that Friday was Valentine's Day. And I knew that we'd be rolling into 1 Corinthians 13. What an appropriate thing for the rhythm of our holidays to actually have the scripture say, Oh, by the way, it isn't just hearts and flowers. This is a call 
to holiness. This is a call for us to aspire to greater things, a more excellent way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. The scripture is so rich. There's an endless supply of lessons, an endless supply of reminders. And this is why we keep coming back to your word. And even when it's familiar, there is still another way and a new way to look at it again. We pray that in your wisdom and in your glory and your encouragement to us that we will see this more excellent way and live it. In Jesus' name, amen.